Today's New Testament lesson is from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, friends, I I think I speak for all of us here that uh, it's hard to find the words to express how moving and meaningful it is to hear such music coming from the chancel, uh, to be with you, to hear Paul on the organ and Alden on the timpani. Uh, Laura, Adam, and uh, all of you, it's, it's, such, it's such a joy to be in person and also to be with you all who are with us in spirit and in truth as we worship together. I'm thankful for the scripture reading today, uh, which as you could see was a bit creative with Kathleen and Dana and Corey. Uh, I don't know if we typecast Corey as the devil or not, but he did very well in that. Uh, and also I think confirmed our suspicions that in fact Satan does have a Southern accent. I did not know that until the video, uh, but we're grateful for their sharing with us uh, the word today. If you were here last week, you know that we began what I called a 47-week series on walking with Jesus. And we're splitting that series over the next 47 weeks. The next year, we're going to just focus on the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we're dividing this series into six subsections. So for the next 10 weeks, we're going to begin with a series called Teach Us to Pray. What we're doing is for the next couple of months, we're exploring specific texts in Luke's narrative that highlight the impact Uh, the effect of prayer in the life and ministry of Jesus, and and in fact, in the life and ministry of all disciples. What we noted last week was that it was Jesus's practice in prayer that actually provoked the question of the disciples in Luke chapter 11. In fact, while Jesus was praying, they were with him, and when he finished, Luke 11 says, they looked at Jesus and said, Lord, would you teach us to do that? Would you teach us to pray? It's the only thing that the disciples actually ever asked Jesus to teach them. They never said, would you teach us to preach? Would you teach us to heal or to exercise demons? They didn't ask. They said, Lord, would you teach us to pray? 
Because apparently the disciples who had walked with Jesus, who had lived with Jesus, who had worked with Jesus, they discerned a correlation between his piety and his power. And so the practice of his prayer life provoked the question. And he gave the model prayer. We talked about this last week. The pattern, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Actually, it's the disciples' prayer. And we noted in the pattern of the prayer that Jesus taught, there's an acronym, AIR, A-I-R, adoration, Abba, hallowed, holy is thy name, starts with that, intercession, thy kingdom come, and then the request. There are three universal requests that Jesus taught us to pray for. Pray for daily bread, that is sustenance, provision. Pray prayers of intercession, thy kingdom come. And then there were essentially three requests that Jesus coaches us in prayer to remember, to petition God for. Bread, forgiveness, and deliverance. Now, I want to suggest to you that the specific line in that last request that Jesus teaches is, did you notice, lead us not into temptation. The Greek word is parazzo. It means testing or a trial of some sort. And so it's not just me, I think. Maybe you also thought it was a little odd when you read in Luke 4, 1, these words, now Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. Now, don't look now, but it looks like that God is sabotaging his own son, leading him into the wilderness. And never mind James 1.13 that says, look, when you're tempted, nobody should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does God tempt anyone. And yet, all three synoptic gospels agree that while Jesus' head was still wet with baptismal waters, that the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested. So what's going on? I think there's an implicit truth if you read between the lines in Luke 4, and I think it's simply this. Wilderness always follows water. In other words, temptation always follows revelation. Baptism by fire follows baptism by water. It was true for Jesus. It's true for you. It was true for the Hebrew slaves. After their deliverance through the Red Sea, what did they do? They wandered in the wilderness being tested for 40 years. It took three days to get them out of slavery, it took 40 years to get slavery out of them. But if you read between the lines, what Luke is saying is that testing is a part of the journey. It's a reality. It it comes with the frock, temptation, wilderness. Gil Rendell wrote a book called Quietly Courageous that I, I think is a must for any disciple. And he describes wilderness, the wilderness like this. Listen. The wilderness is disorienting and deeply unfamiliar territory, which assuredly makes it a favored place for God to change the hearts, minds, and purposes of chosen people. In the wilderness, he says, 
Leaders must learn to lead with courage without being exactly sure of where they are going. Boy, is that ever true, especially in a pandemic. Now, if you're me, you're thinking, uh, sonship really ought to exempt us from the wilderness, shouldn't it? I mean, if you're a daughter or a child of God, a son of God, you would think that we might get an exemption from temptation, but we don't. Nobody is immune. Nobody is invulnerable to temptation. In fact, Jesus wasn't even invulnerable. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tested as are we, yet he was without sin. So not a one of us in this house or streaming, not a one of us is immune to the test, to temptation. I love Carl Sandburg, who three times was a Pulitzer Prize winner, twice for poetry, once for his work on Lincoln. He once wrote, and I quote, listen to this, there is an eagle in me that wants to soar, and there's a hippopotamus in me that wants to wallow in the mud. Nobody is immune. In fact, I could make a case if we had time today to say that the folks who are most engaged in the work of the kingdom are most likely to experience the opposition of evil. No one is immune. Now, Paul helps us out at this point. He's very encouraging when he writes to the Corinthians these words in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. Look, no testing has ever overtaken you that is not common to all. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, we'll provide a way out so that you can endure the pressure. I have a lot of people that have been talking lately about the pressure of the pandemic and how it builds character. I don't know about you, but I've got enough character for the last five months. I'm ready to move on a little bit. But I've also recognized that pressure sometimes may be God's way of increasing our spiritual capacity. Now, I'm not suggesting that God causes all pressure. I'm simply saying that God uses pressure sometimes. Certainly the pandemic has pushed many of you, students included, into a new threshold of patience and faithfulness. Now I want to pause it there for just a moment because I want to say a word on behalf of the devil. I know you, you don't expect to hear that from here, but I just want to give the devil his due for just a minute. The devil has awfully good timing because before Jesus ever preaches a sermon, before he ever cast out a demon, before he ever healed a sick person, the tempter is on him. But Jesus is ready. I love the way Luke says, now Jesus was full of the Spirit. In other words, he's been fasting, he's been praying 40 days. He's been contemplating his identity, his mission, his purpose so when the tempter comes calling, he's ready. There's something else I want you to notice. I want you to notice that each temptation is presented not as an opportunity to fall, but to rise. 
I mean, this is so Satan. This is typical. Go back to Genesis 3 where the tempter never says to Adam and Eve, hey, you want to become a snake like me? You want to become a deceiver? Would you like to be a devil like me? No. He says, do you want to be like God? Do you want to be God for yourself? And Adam and Eve are sitting ducks. Temptation is almost never posed as something vile or contemptible. It's usually posed as something cool or helpful or maybe even necessary. I've noticed in my own life that temptation usually comes through a door that has been deliberately left open. There's one other thing I want to mention about temptation. Temptation usually occurs not at the point of our weakness, but at the point of our strength. When you think about it, the crux of temptation in this scene is really, it's just about the misuse of power. That's what it is, the abuse of power. Using God-given gifts for my benefit for my group, for my people, rather than using influence and power for the good of others and the glory of God. Now, you see this specifically in the first two temptations. Turn this stone to bread, says Satan. What's he saying? Break your fast. Have breakfast. Break your spiritual concentration is what he's saying. You don't need to, you don't need to pray to God for daily bread, provision. Just, just grab it. You've got to look out for number one. You don't. Nobody else will. The second temptation is he takes him to a high mountain, shows him the kingdoms of the world. Worship me, he says, and I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. That's interesting in the Greek language, the word for world, you know what it is? It's not cosmos. It's not the creative natural order. It's oikonomos, translates to mean economy or the material world. It's the empire. It's the socio-political order. And so what the tempter is saying to the Messiah is, you don't need to pray thy kingdom come This is your kingdom now. You can have it all now. It's the abuse of power. That is the crux of temptation. Forget about self-denial. Don't worry about suffering. Forget about sacrifice. You don't need to worry about bearing somebody else's cross. And this love your neighbor as yourself. Forget about it. Now, I've noticed that sometimes we hear that voice not only from the enemy... But sometimes we hear it from our friends. I remember Peter's confession. You remember this? Which, by the way, was the result of a prayer meeting, which we're going to look at in two weeks in Luke chapter 9. Peter was the first to confess, you're the Messiah. That happened as a result of a prayer meeting. And right after Peter's profession of faith, Jesus began to explain to them what being a Messiah was all about. It's not about a revolution, not about a political kingdom. In fact, he says in the fine print, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and be killed 
crucified and on the third day raised to life. And Peter rebukes Jesus. There is no possible way, Lord, he says, this must never happen to you. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That that is no way to talk to your best friend. But Jesus had heard that voice before. He heard it in the wilderness. And he looks at his best friend and says, you're a stumbling block to me. For you have in mind not the thoughts of God, but your own agenda. I had cataract surgery this past week, so if you see me looking funny, it's because my left eye is good. I have 20-20 for the first time in 50 years. I can see everybody clearly here. You all are a little fuzzy, but on Wednesday, the right eye will match the left eye, and I hope to have 20-20 by then. The surgeon removed the old lens that I was born with and actually replaced it with a new lens. And so I'm seeing this morning, I'm seeing things that I have never seen before, and quite frankly, some of them concern me. Uh, Just before, it was very interesting, I was in the waiting room, there was one of our members, Bobby Long, who was on the gurney inside, who saw me and asked me to come and pray. I said, I'll pray for you only if you pray for me. And we had the same eye done on the same day, next week, the same eye again. Before I was rolled in for that treatment, I said to the doctor, Doc, can you give me a lens in the left eye that enables me to see only what I want to see? And he thought for a minute and he said, you know, I just sold my last pair to a couple of guys from Washington. He didn't tell me who they were. But it occurred to me that one of the drawbacks of being in person as opposed to streaming is you all don't have a mute button. And so you'll have to hear what you want to hear and what you don't. And I have to see what I want to see and even that which I may not want to see. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who talked about prayer said, and I love this, prayer is the contemplation of the facts of life from the highest point of view. And I've noticed that when I see things only through my myopic lens, I wind up limiting God and sounding more like the devil than Jesus. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is ready. He's equipped. He is prayed up. He is studied up. And he responds to every test with Scripture. It is written, and whenever you see that, you know that something's to be quoted in the Torah. It is written, man does not live by bread alone. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. But it's that last temptation that's pretty tricky. It turns out that the devil also knows the Bible. In fact, when he was a little devil, he went to vacation Bible school. He got his Master of Divinity. He's been to seminary. I know because I had him in class, but that's another story. And in the third temptation, he actually quotes Scripture to Jesus. He takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says to him, if you are God's son, then jump off, for it is written, 
Psalm 91, God will command the angels to protect you and they will hold you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Shakespeare once said, there is no error so gross, but that some sober brow will bless it with a proper text. It looks like checkmate at this point in the test. But Jesus responds again by quoting scripture against scripture. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What was Jesus doing? He's demonstrating the importance of interpretation. You don't only need to know the text, you gotta know the context because I've said it before, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And the devil is a master at proof texting. What he's doing is he's using scripture to manipulate Jesus into accomplishing a hidden agenda. And Jesus is wise to this trick. I don't know why it is, but I've done it myself before. There are some preachers sometimes, we preach sermons that are desperately looking for a text. In other words, we have something we want to say that may or not, may not be cooperative with the Scripture. That's why every time that I study, every time that I preach, I remember 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who never need be ashamed, dividing the word of truth. I'll tell you what Jesus, what got Jesus in trouble What got Jesus in hot water in his ministry with the Pharisees is he was always saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. His Sermon on the Mount was a reinterpretation of Scripture in a way that got at the root of the Scripture, not just the letter of the law, and he got nailed for it. Lead us not into temptation. And the Spirit led Jesus right into the line of fire. It's inevitable. It's a part of the journey. Wilderness follows water. Temptation follows revelation. But there's a fundamental difference between the testing of God and of Satan. What is it? The adversary tests us in order to bring us down. But God tests us to build us up. So be ready. Be prayed up. Studied up. I have a couple of things I want to mention and then I'm finished. Has, has anybody read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters? It's one of, one of the most marvelous books on the reality of sin and evil that I've ever read. It is written from the standpoint of a, per, a person called Screwtape, who is one of the bigwig demons in the bureaucracy of hell, in the lowerarchy of hell. Screwtape is a lead demon and he's coaching his young nephew, intern, whose name is Wormwood. He's coaching him in the art of tempting humans. And this this is what he says. Listen to this. You see, son, it is so hard for these human creatures to persevere. 
the routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet despair of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness which we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to life. All of this provides admirable opportunity of wearing out a soul by erosion. End of quote. Let me tell you what enables your endurance. What enables our deliverance in the wilderness is not just knowing the Word, but knowing Jesus, the Word made flesh. He doesn't just recite Scripture. He embodies it. He personifies it in the wilderness even, in Gethsemane. Even at Golgotha on a cross when he's dying, he's living it. Not because he's seizing control, but because he's surrendering control. And by so doing, he reinterprets what it means to be human. He delivers us not from temptation, but in temptation. He delivers us. Last word, and I mean it this time. A friend of mine told me the other day of a little boy who was visiting the local zoo. And somehow he got separated from his parents and they were in an attraction there known as the House of Night where nocturnal creatures crawled and slithered about and all of a sudden electricity went off and and the place was completely dark. He was separated from his parents and instinctively, immediately, he lifted out a hand and, and the first hand he came to belonged to a stranger, an older woman, and he just grabbed her hand, held on to it. She realized what was happening, and she said to him, son, uh, who do you belong to? And he said, lady, I'm yours until the lights come on. (laughs) In the darkness, in the light, in the midnight, in the noontime, In the pandemic, when there's a vaccine, in our joy, in our heartache, we know the one to whom we belong. And in his presence, we find our deliverance. And so we pray. Teach us to pray. And teach us to embody what we pray so that we can be an answer to somebody else's prayer, which is as good as it gets to the glory of God. Amen.